Welcome to Conversations with Owens Community College President, Dr. Dion D. Somerville. Thank you for joining me for our second episode. I can't tell you how thrilling it's been to hear from so many people since launching that first podcast. Our guest was Chancellor Randy Gardner, and we've received so many positive messages talking about the quality of his interview, how they've learned about Owens, and the value we have to our greater community. We were looking at the downloads dashboard for the first episode, and we expected the bulk of our audience would be in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, but we even had a download in Belgium, making this an international podcast. So thank you to everyone who's help make this a reality. We've had downloads on the East Coast and West Coast. And for those of you who are in our home neighborhood of Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, we invite you to stop by Owens. One of the things that's remarkable about our campus is the size of our facilities and the quality of our facilities. It helps you understand what they offer to our students and to our community. Speaking of, I want to take some time to talk about our Center for Emergency Preparedness. Since its grand opening in 2007, the center has been offering hands-on training to students who are preparing for careers in public safety. If you haven't seen it and you live near our Toledo area campus, you really should come and check it out. There's a training tower, a Boeing 727, and even a mock city that includes a bank, gas station, and convenience store. The fire science and law enforcement building is located about a half a mile away. One of the things that strikes you when you walk into this building are the photos of first responders who are out on the scene doing what they do every day to keep us safe. Now, our relationship with Toledo Fire and Rescue certainly precedes the Center for Emergency Preparedness. We've had a partnership in place since 1999 and have been training firefighters since 1970. My guest today is Toledo Fire and Rescue Chief Allison Armstrong. She's a proud alum of Owens Community College, and she's someone who has always had a dream to be a firefighter. But she knew she might need a plan B. Her plan B was pretty unusual because it was nursing. And we know that most nursing students, nursing is their first choice. But the wonderful thing about post-secondary education is that it allows you to both plan and to pivot. And so while many students walking into Heritage Hall, which is about as far away on our campus as you can get from the Center for Emergency Preparedness, they may ultimately use their nursing career to leverage their careers in new and exciting ways. After Owens, Chief Armstrong went on to complete a Bachelor of Nursing from Mercy College and a Master of Health Informatics from the University of Cincinnati. Chief Armstrong fulfilled her ultimate dream of becoming a firefighter and was hired by Toledo Fire and Rescue in 2000. While nursing may not have been her first choice, she certainly has benefited from her training because of the heavy emphasis on medical care that's needed out in the field. When we think about all the things we want for our students here at Owens, Chief Armstrong's career truly embodies that vision. She rose up the ranks of Toledo Fire and Rescue, and on February 1, 2022, she was appointed fire chief, becoming the first female fire chief in the department's 185-year history. Chief Armstrong comes from a family of civil servants. Her father was a member of the Toledo Police Department for 25 years, and she is married to a retired member of Toledo Fire and Rescue who served 33 years, and together they have one son. Chief Armstrong even plays ice hockey for the Toledo Fire hockey team that she's done since she was hired in 2000. Hello, 
thank you so much for being here today. I'm excited to have you as our guest. So one of the questions that I like to start off with for all of our guests is what made you decide that you needed post-secondary education, that you needed something beyond high school, and how did you make those choices? Well, first of all, thank you for having me today. I am excited to be here. So I graduated high school in 1997, went to Central Catholic. I always wanted to go to college. No one else in my immediate family went to college. I mean, my mother went to technical school, but it was a personal goal of mine to go to college and ultimately obtain a master's degree. Like that's something that I wanted to do for myself. And I always wanted to be a Toledo firefighter. At the time, it didn't require college. It required specialty training. And in order to get that specialty training, you had to be affiliated with the fire department. Well, I lived in Toledo, so I couldn't be affiliated with the suburban departments or volunteer departments. So I decided to go to Owens and pursue nursing. So I started out in the nursing program in 97. And not too many people know the story, but I was in nursing class the first day. And the instructor says, introduce yourself. Tell us why you want to be a nurse. And there's probably 25 people in the room. And all of them said the same thing. I've always wanted to be a nurse. It's my turn. And I'm going, am I in the right place? Because I wanted to be a firefighter. I simply chose nursing because I thought if I can't be a firefighter, for whatever reason, I wanted something to fall back on. But that first day scared me. So I changed majors a couple times and ultimately finished my nursing degree here at Owens. And the reason that I picked Owens was because of the cost. My family didn't have a lot of money. I looked at other schools, but they were very expensive. Owens was very accessible. It was cost effective. And I really enjoyed my time at Owens. Honestly, this is another thing that many people know. I got signed to play softball here at Owens probably back in 98 or 99, but I was at the rec center between classes playing basketball and I tore my ACL. So I didn't play that season because I was injured, but that was a great opportunity that I was thankful that I had. And I played the year before. I think it was a club status, and then it went to a a more formal team. Yeah. Well, what position did you play? First base. I'm left-handed. Oh, that's pretty awesome. We have a wonderful softball team, and I know that it would be wonderful if ever you have time to be able to come out and catch a game. But we pride ourselves, as you mentioned, about a lot of the things people associate with us, like accessibility and, you know, good education for the value, things of that nature. But I've been really impressed with our athletics program, and our students really have a high level of achievement in the classroom as well as, you know, in the field, the court, wherever it is their, their games are. And I'm sure you would have been an asset as well. So tell me why you always wanted to be a firefighter. My dad was a Toledo police officer, and so there was that public service aspect to my life. My mom worked, she wasn't a nurse, but she worked as an x-ray tech at Mercy ER back when that was open. And I think because of their occupations and you know my upbringing, I wanted to help people. But I didn't want to be a police officer, and I didn't necessarily want to work in an ER. So my brother joined an Explorer program for firefighting. It was based out of Sylvania, and he's four years older, so of course I want to do what my big brother does. So when I was old enough, I joined also, and I just fell in love with the fire service. I really felt called to serve and help people, and it just fit my personality great. So I decided at a young age, probably maybe 12, that that's what I wanted to do, and nobody was going to stop me from doing it. So I always had that in my sights, but at the time, the civil service tests were about two years apart. They gave them every two years. The process took about a year to get hired. It's very, very lengthy. And so because I graduated in 97, I couldn't take the test till 98 or 99. And then I got hired in July of 2000. 
That's pretty amazing. So you mentioned that it uh, fit your personality and it's just something you were called to and that you always wanted to do. As you think about all of the young people or, you know, people who may be looking for a different line of work or a different career, what is it that you feel is unique about the profession of being a firefighter? Like what about it stands apart or what advice would you give someone who's thinking about this as a profession or who might not be, who's listening to this podcast, who, you know, what might spark their interest? I would say the two most unique things about being a firefighter is one, our schedule. We work a 24-hour schedule. So we work 24 hours on, we work 48 hours off. And because of that, it is a very family-like environment. So you live with your crew, you eat with them, you cry with them, you laugh with them, you clean the station with them. It's it's like your house. And so I think because of the schedule and the environment, you they become your family members. It's like your family, right? And you fight with each other sometimes, but you go out the door and you go on runs and your mission is to help and save the citizens of Toledo and you do that together. And then you go back and you do a lot of the same things that you would do with your family. And so I think that makes it very unique in terms of other occupations. And I think, to me, it's the greatest job in the world. And I think if you talk to any firefighter, they would all say the same thing. It's the greatest job of the world. And I think it's because of a lot of those things that we feel that way. Even though working 24 hours can be very difficult, especially in a city like Toledo, we are very busy. It's made bearable because you're doing it with your family, right? And you're doing it with people that you want to be with that usually crews gravitate towards similar type personalities and people that can work together and enjoy working together. So it makes it all worth it. Even if you're tired and you're running 24 hours, you're doing it with the people you want to be with that you work well together with and it makes it all good. Makes it all worthwhile. When you think about the average 24 hours, I know that no day is ever going to look the same, but I would imagine that in the stretch of, you know, your shift or a string of shifts, that there are certain things that you've gotten to do as a firefighter that bring you absolute joy and others that are harder to walk away from. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of what are some of the ways that you deal with having those different highs and lows that may come with just normal, normal things that occur on the job? Well, you're absolutely right. It's an extreme of high and lows. Sometimes you go out the door and you're able to get there in time and you are able to save somebody, whether it's a medical emergency, whether it's from a house fire, accident, especially rescue, any of those things like you got there and you save that person. And that is the ultimate goal. Right. And that's where you leave feeling like, hey, I'm here for a reason. I made a difference. I relied on my training, my crewmates, and we saved this person. But then on the flip side of that, you have those incidents where unfortunately we get there too late or everything's stacked against us and and nothing that we can possibly do is going to save that person or make that difference that we truly want to make. And that's hard, right? That's very, very hard. And we do that time and time again. So the way that I deal with that is relying on my crewmates. That family atmosphere that I was talking about, you rely on those people to talk to, to grieve with, to lift up when they need it. And as firefighters, we we do see a lot of bad things. So therefore, we have to have positive coping mechanisms or you're not going to make it a full career in this occupation because of the highs and lows. What we've worked really hard to do is work with EAP services to be cognizant of people's trauma that they see, right? Because you're, you're basically exposed to repeated trauma. We've done a lot of different programs and coordinated different resources for people. I mean, because there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. We want to have an abundance of resources available for every different person. 
you know, sometimes you have a bad run and, you know, I've had bad runs and I want to go home, but it's three in the morning. So what am I going to, I'm going to go home and wake up my family and expose them to the trauma that I was just exposed to? No, ultimately I want to stay with my crewmates and talk to them and lean on them and, you know, we'll get through that together. So that's what I've done. Well, you know, it's interesting because as you kind of look at our society as a whole, there really seems to be an evolution in terms of how we deal with or talk about mental health, even how we categorize it. And even you using the term repeated trauma, which is indeed what I would imagine it is when you think of the scope of when you need a first responder, be it firefighter, police officer, whomever. And it's it's more out in the general society that we talk about it. And I think that there's been some things that have helped us along the way. You know, I, I like sports. And so, you know, Kevin Love talking about his mental health concerns very openly and other stars have talked about it. And even following some of what's happened nationally to police officers and, you know, we talk about January 6th, you know, regardless of what happened, we know that there were some people who were impacted. Can you talk about what that culture has been like for first responders and what have been some positive changes in how we talk about mental health and what it means to keep people healthy from a very holistic perspective? Absolutely. I think it's a lot of the things that you're talking about. I think in the past, there was a stigma associated with mental health issues or talking about your feelings. I think in the fire service specifically, people felt like they couldn't bring those things forward. And they felt like if they ask for help, everybody's going to know and they're going to judge them and they're going to think differently of them. And I think to your point, we've worked very, very hard as a society and in the fire service to take that stigma away, to put programs together and education and training to say, hey, it's okay to ask for help and it's okay not to be okay. You're human. And and like I said before, our job is very difficult. You are subjected to that repeated trauma, to good times and bad times. And I don't know that anybody can deal with that without some sort of coping mechanisms or without leaning on somebody else to talk to. I I mean, I think that's all just natural and some people require more than others. And so the International Association of Firefighters, which is the umbrella organization that the firefighters are under, has worked very, very hard and even the state and local level to push these programs to educate people and to make sure that firefighters don't end up in a spot where they feel like they can't ask for help or they feel depressed or suicidal or commit suicide. And I think there have been and great strides made in that. That's wonderful to hear because one of the things that we talk about a lot at Owens is knowing that there's an abundance of resources, be it for mental health, for either community partnerships, things of that nature, for students as well as employees, knowing that we need all of that. And it's an area where I think as a community, as a society, we're evolving. Another one where I think we're evolving as a country, it was very much celebrated you know, with your appointment that you're the first woman to lead Toledo Fire and Rescue. And so can you talk a little bit about that experience? I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of fanfare around it, but tell me a little bit about how that has changed and how that's changed generally in the profession of firefighting. Sure. So that's all somewhat uncomfortable for me because I don't seek or crave attention. But what I've found really interesting about the whole idea behind being the first female fire chief that I hadn't anticipated was kind of what you were talking about before is the excitement. It is how people are excited for me and they're excited for me to be in this position because now I can advocate for girls that want to go into a profession that maybe has been male dominated or something. Maybe they felt that they couldn't see themselves in because they didn't have somebody at my level to look at and say, you know what? I can do that. And so that's been great. And I am excited 
to be in that role where I can advocate and be a mentor and be a role model for people that thought maybe they couldn't do that. That's been fantastic. But on the other side, when I came into this job, I didn't have too many issues being a female. I would say never, but I didn't have too many issues. And I credit the women that came before me. I mean, we hired our first female in 1984. And so I always give credit to the women that came before me because they were the ones entering a male-dominated occupation where change is hard. And especially when you have all men and now you're introducing women, we all know that you know that's a difficult transition, but they paved the way for me then to come in. And when I got promoted, I expected to have some naysayers and there really weren't. I heard maybe one negative comment out of how many thousands. And that surprised me a little bit because I feel like there's always a small subset of people they're going to criticize. And I really, in thinking about it, feel that due to my resume, my experience, my respect within the community and the fire department, the fact that I've done so many different aspects of this job and I'm credible, really shut out any of the criticism that I would have gotten. It's nice because even though, like you said, there's others who help pave the way and you're standing on their shoulders and their accomplishments and achievements, it wasn't a job that you were given. It was one that you earned and that your role is a natural evolution and a really a testimony to your achievements and accomplishments throughout your career. So one of the things that I wanted to make sure we touch base on, in addition to your role as an Owens alum, Owens has a long history with Toledo Fire and Rescue, as well as Police Department and everything else through our Center for Emergency Preparedness. And so given that we have this long relationship, what are some of the things that you see in terms of how you expect that relationship to evolve or change or um, what some different needs might be in the future? So yeah, we do have a very long-standing relationship with Owens Community College, one that we are very grateful and thankful for. We are excited to have our academy out here. I had not been out here probably in years until maybe a month ago, and when I walked in the door, I was immediately impressed. You know, looking at the office space and the setup and, you know, the pictures on the wall. Those pictures are pretty amazing, aren't they? They are great, <laughs> and it's it, it's a great space. And we really enjoy being here. And the, the training aspect, the facilities that you have for training, we simply don't have due to funding constraints. And so to me, it doesn't make sense to spend all that money on something if you don't have the funding when you can have a partnership with Owens Community College and both work together to provide those resources and achieve common goals and really have that partnership for not only that, but for education and then to open up opportunities for other things. So in terms of where I see it going, I think there's always room to improve relationships and like identify common goals, but I, I am happy with the way things are now, honestly. And so I don't really know what we would need to do you know, in the near future. Obviously, I'm open to any suggestions or ideas that you may have or your staff may have to enhance those partnerships. But I don't really have anything on the forefront because we have great resource as it is. And like I said, in terms of office space, in terms of the training facility, you guys are already doing things to the point where we're happy and satisfied. That's wonderful to hear. I mean, we're very proud of the relationship that we have with both the Toledo police as well as the fire and rescue. And I remember taking my first tour of that facility a few months back. And it's amazing because I don't know what I was expecting, but there's a level of ownership from fire and from the police department in terms of their space. And I remember you had mentioned the the pictures, but going through and looking at photos of different 
scenes that the fire department was involved in helping doing your job is pretty amazing. And to think of it as this is the beginning of how not only we train, but educate and acculturate people who are going to be first responders. It was amazing to me to see that level of ownership and what it means to the different departments who call that place their their training home. And so we've been very thrilled to have the center continue to have that partnership and look forward to continuing that for, you know, well into the future. I think one of the the big benefits for us to being out here and interacting with some of your students and staff is opening other people's eyes to the fire police. And because we have these facilities out here, we interact with the people on a regular basis. And, you know, that's important to us because recruiting, it's taken on a whole new meeting since I took the test back in the late 90s. At that time, you filled out an interest card and you advertise in the blade. They put the ad out and 3,200 people showed up. No problem. That's all you had to do was put a notice in the blade and people showed up. That doesn't happen anymore. We have to work a lot harder to recruit. We have to spend a lot more time to recruit. It's an ongoing recruiting effort where before we would start up recruiting maybe three months before a test. And and simply making those connections for people to fill out the interest cards and just tell them, hey, this is coming up, look for it. That's all we had to do. It, It was fairly easy. So because it's taken on this whole new meaning, I think it's great to expose people to the fire service and we can do that easily with your campus. So I think that's a great benefit to us. And then I think it's a benefit to you all because then people are getting into professions that they want to be in. And maybe they didn't know about the fire service. Maybe they had a class out at one of the buildings and they ran into you know one of our firefighters or training staff and started asking them questions. Next thing they know, I want to sign up to be a firefighter. So that's been fantastic for us. And I thank you for that. I think it's a good partnership um, as we look at it moving forward. You had mentioned that recruiting is different, and I know from attending some of our police academy graduations, they often talk about how it's difficult to get people to want to become a police officer. And even for our classes there, usually every graduate already has a job offer. And I think that speaks to the quality of the program, but also it speaks to the nature of what that field is like. And I know that over the last few years for law enforcement, that some of the climate changes, things of that nature have made it more difficult to recruit new officers. What's been the change for firefighters? So we've had some of the same troubles. And I think, honestly, there's so many jobs out there and there's so many technology jobs. And I feel like maybe people are drawn to just different jobs and maybe there's just an overall lack of people to fill all the jobs out there. But we've had some trouble recruiting, not to the extent that law enforcement has. Uh, I mean, I talked to Chief Carl all the time, and his numbers are a lot lower than ours. But I think part of it is that people don't really know what being a firefighter is. I mean, you think of the title firefighter, but 80-some percent of what we do is actually EMS. And so people are just not educated about what it means to be a firefighter slash EMT. And I think the other part is our workload, our run volume has just gone up. It just keeps going higher and higher and higher. And the pay, I think it's good. The pay and benefits, I think, are good. But I think in other sectors, they might be better. And so where we had a lot of people being drawn to these jobs because of the pay, the work, the benefits, now I Maybe people are thinking, well, I can go over here and do this, make more, and maybe do less work. You know, I don't know. I think there's a lot of things that go into it. But we do a civil service test process. We have less people taking the test. But this last recruiting cycle, I didn't have a problem getting qualified candidates. Which we're all thankful for. It is interesting. We talk about how we have the new Dana Center for Advanced Manufacturing. And while there's a lot of contract training classes that we offer 
to where it's fully utilized, we talk about how young people don't always recognize that advanced manufacturing is not the stereotypical factory job from 50 years ago where you go home with oil and soot all over you. And so I wonder if there's not something parallel that they may have an idea of what something is, but they don't understand the day-to-day and ins and outs of that and how to move forward with that because there's jobs throughout our community that need to be filled. And sometimes it just really is kind of overcoming a lack of understanding or, you know, tapping into people who may have a passion to serve, but don't know exactly how they want to serve their community to be able to help them open their eyes to a different pathway they may not have thought of previously. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, as we're talking about pathways, we know we have the PS419 program with Toledo Public Schools as a way of exposing young people to public safety careers. Um, And we're really proud to be part of that collaboration here at Owens. As you talk about recruitment and and efforts like that, how does a program like PS419 fit into that for the fire department? So I think it goes back to exactly what you're saying. By having that program, we're able to interact with those high school students and we're able to educate and explain to them what a career in firefighting or law enforcement is. And I think that's huge to get them engaged and get them interested and excited for those careers. Because if you don't know somebody that has that career, then like you said, you probably know nothing about it. And maybe you didn't even consider it just because it's not on your radar. I was fortunate, like I said, my my father was a law enforcement officer. So I had that exposure and I knew what his job was about. So that helped me. But our hope is that that program will engage the high school students, will get them interested in those careers, and will help them to get education and to get some certifications needed. That way, it'll give them a leg up and it'll give them the ability to transition into a career in firefighting or law enforcement easier. Absolutely. You know, it just seems like such a great opportunity when you have the Toledo Fire and Rescue, Toledo Public School Systems, and Owens Community College working together to really serve a community need and to provide those educational pathways for young people so that they can, you know, move on and have whatever the career is that they would like. And so as we're talking about that kind of preparation, what is it that you see the role of higher education in for Toledo Fire and Rescue. You mentioned that you had a very specific path, and I don't know how many people say nursing was my fallback, but you know, what is the role of education and training as you consider the future of firefighting? That's a very important question. So I've been a firefighter for almost 22 years, and as we talked about, I have a master's degree, and it's in health information technology, which actually parallels very nice with the job being that we do a lot of EMS and being that one of our biggest programs at Pseudo Fire and Rescue right now that I'm implementing is a software program. But to answer your question, over my almost 22-year career, I have seen the evolution from firefighting being more of a experience and skill-based kind of path to leadership to being more research-based, educational-based. I mean, you still have that skill and experience is absolutely needed. But on top of that, I'm seeing more people with bachelor's degrees, with master's degrees and above. And I think we've made that transition within Toledo Fire and Rescue. So for example, I have a master's degree. My assistant chief has a master's degree. One of my deputies has a bachelor's degree. You know, those were things when I came on, I don't believe any of those executive leadership positions held those degrees. And, and again, not it's nothing against them. 
but this was more experience and skill learn on the job type thing to pathway to promotion where now we're seeing like it's more well-rounded in terms of having that background and experience, but then also having the education to go along with it. And I think it's really important. I think it's very important. I don't know where we're going to go in the future as far as mandating it, but we do have a tuition reimbursement program that we make available to everybody. I think we see more and more people using it. I don't have exact numbers, but I get those requests and I have to approve them. And a lot of people are taking advantage of that. And I think it's important. And I think it just be, helps us become more well-rounded and at my level, make informed decisions and use my educational background, leadership classes, you know, the data science stuff to drive our decision making. And it's only going to make us better as an organization. So along those lines, how do you align then that the education and training piece with where the future of fire and rescue is going? How do you see your field continuing to evolve and how education may or may not play a role in that? The fire service has evolved greatly just over my time here, and there's been a push for education for research. One of the biggest pushes is research, and I don't think that that research would have happened without people from or people with educational, higher educational backgrounds pushing it, if that makes sense. And so we have programs like NIST that does research studies to learn about firefighting, and then educate people on what's going to make us safer, tactics, stuff like that. So we're combining all that stuff together to move the fire service forward in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about research in the fire service, and you mentioned this one program about safety, what does research look like? Is it looking at either equipment that may make the firefighters safer or different methodologies of how you approach different emergencies, things of that nature? Is it looking at structures of different buildings or what what exactly does that look like to a layperson? So this NIST is the National Institute for, I think, Safety and Technology, and they actually came here and they did a research study with Toledo Fire. It was a cooperative effort, and there was a building, I think it was one of the old schools, that was being torn down when all of the schools were being rebuilt. And so we went over there, and I was really, really impressed by the work that they do. So what they did in this case, the research was based on fire attack, fire flow, and how ventilation, so opening doors or windows, cutting a hole in the roof, which we'll commonly do to let smoke and heat out, and how all of that affects the fire, affects the people inside, affects firefighter safety. And so when they came, they put all of these probes and cameras in the building, and then they had us come and try different techniques, open a door, close the door, you know, open a window over here. And how does that change the fire? How do those things that we commonly do, how does that change the fire and make it better or worse? And then what can we do to make things as safe as possible and save occupants and reduce the heat and smoke for the firefighters? And from those studies, we learned a lot. And so those things then get applied to our tactics and at the end of the day, make us safer because what we had done in the past for, let's say we go on a house fire, you know, we broke windows because we thought, oh, break the windows, let the air in, that's only going to help. Well, we found out that doesn't, that doesn't help. That actually makes things worse because that fire needs that ventilation to thrive. And so when you introduce that air, 
it makes that fire bigger, hotter. And so that type of research has really impacted the fire service. And then, you know, using data to look at best practices, you know, what are we doing well, what can be done differently? And I don't, I don't know that the fire service really applied best practices until, you know, let's say in the last 10 years or so, it was just all based on somebody going to fire and their experience and saying, hey, this worked or that worked. I don't know that there was a collaboration on research and actually identifying these things or putting the, the time and work into to doing these trials or doing these research studies to actually make sure that that works and that's the best practice to do. So you mentioned the term collaboration, and earlier you talked about how, because you lived in Toledo, you were looking at Toledo Fire and Rescue. How does, not only on the research perspective, but mutual aid, things of that nature, how do different fire operations collaborate? Um, How do you work together either to share information or when there's an issue or concern? How does that work? I think we have very, very good collaboration among the region. So when I got hired in 2000, Mm -hmm. Chief Bell was the fire chief. And Chief Bell was very, very big on the things that you're talking about, mutual aid, collaboration, coordination, relationships with other entities. And it just made sense. You know, we are the largest agency, so we have a lot of resources. We have minimum staffing. And so since I've been on the job, we've always had mutual aid agreements with all the neighboring fire departments. What's changed over the years is that a lot of these departments went from what we would call volunteer or part paid status to now full-time status. So places like Waterville, for example, you know, they transitioned over the last 20 some years that I've been here from volunteer or part paid called in employees. They maybe had to chief one or two people on full-time staff and, you know, they relied on people to respond to the station to take a call. Well, now they have full-time firefighters. So that's really what has evolved and changed. But as far as mutual aid, we've always had those agreements. We continue to have those agreements. And if they call for our assistance, we're going to go help them. We help out a lot in that realm on specialty rescues. Mm -hmm. So if there's a dive rescue or there's a rope rescue or something like that, that's probably where we send the most resources to the neighboring departments. But the other thing for us, let's we have a second alarm fire. And we've had those. We just had one on Bernan that lasted days not not too long ago at the old Babcock Dairy. And so where we will ask for mutual aid typically is when we have those incidents and we're taking up a lot of resources and the other entities will come fill in at our station. And then upon that fill in, they become part of our resources and then they'll be dispatched on runs. And so that's always worked great for us. And I, and I would say these other agencies feel the same way. And we also have the Lucas County Fire Chiefs Association, which is a county organization that works together to achieve common goals, to shoot these ideas back and forth, and to collaborate on different ideas also. So that is a very active organization in the area. And I think we all work well together. And I think that's something that has evolved over the years because a long time ago, I think people wanted to have their own departments and they wanted to handle their own business. And I'm going to do things my way, but I think we have great working relationships with all the different departments and we collaborate. Well, it sounds like there's so much more involved with firefighting than what I think the average person who doesn't have insight into it would know in terms of the research, the technical aspects, the preparation and training, the collaboration, you know, everything that goes into it, which makes it sound incredibly exciting. I could understand why people would be drawn to this field and why they would want to stay in it. I have a personal question that I'm hoping you can answer for me. And, And so by way of background, one of my brothers is retired police officer, and he knows that I do like watching crime 
crime shows. I do like Chicago PD and Chicago Fire and Chicago Med. And so I'll tease them every so often. And I'm like, come on, you mean you couldn't get a DNA test done in five minutes? I mean, what what's the issue there? And so he always tells me that Dion, that is not exactly how it works. And so for Chicago Fire, I'm not, you don't have to disclose if you watch it or not, but in general, how on par are those kinds of programs with reality and what actually happens in, um, in real life? So I do not watch those shows, <laughs> but I do know something about them because my 13-year-old son and my mother, who is currently live with, living with us, watches those shows. So they talk about it all the time, which is kind of funny that 13-year-old and the 71-year-old sit there and watch the shows together and talk about it. But from the little bit that I've watched with them, mm-hmm. I would say it's semi-realistic, I would call it. Mm-hmm. They tend to take the extremes of things Mm -hmm. and jam them all into like a one hour episode. That's what I've seen. Uh I think it's gotten better because if you look at at a movie like Backdraft, for Uh example, you know, that was very unrealistic, but I think it's gotten better because I at least see that they wear SCBAs, which is our breathing, you know, apparatus and masks on, Mm -hmm. on Chicago fire. So that makes me happy because that is more realistic, (laughs) but some of the things that happen, are not not necessarily realistic. Okay. Well, thank you for continuing to have that dose of reality. I asked one of our faculty in our medical imaging program, and she was talking about a new piece of mobile equipment that we got. And I says, oh, is that when they want the mobile, whatever it is that they were talking about on Chicago Med? And I got a, I got a lesson. I got a lecture of how they were using it incorrectly on the television show and how all these other things had to be in place. And so I get it that it's entertainment and drama, but you want to know that it's based in something that's that's remotely factual. So I, I appreciate the explanation. So we talked a little bit earlier about how there's been an evolution and where things are going in the future in terms of research, higher education, things of that nature. What are some of the aspects of being in the fire service or being in fire and rescue that people may not know about? Different technical aspects that may draw a young person to it when they don't necessarily understand the breadth and everything that's part of the profession. Yeah, so fire and rescue is kind of a profession where you end up being a jack of all trades. And so with that, we have so many opportunities for training. And those are things like our technical rescue, which is uh, confined space, trench rescue, high angle rescue, which would be like rope rescue. We have a dive team. We just took possession of a 40 foot I think over a million dollar boat that we use for dive rescue, water rescue, fire suppression on the river. Went out on the boat the other day and the riverfront is very, very active with um, all sorts of industry and freighters and things like that, that I don't remember being there 20 some years ago. So, you know, with that, we had a fire on a freighter. We had a medical emergency on one of those freighters. We just had a technical rescue along that area. We have a hazmat team. We have a person we just assigned to the Toledo bomb squad. We're trying to work with Toledo police on SWAT response because they go on a lot of SWAT responses and they need a medical component to that. They have their own officers that have some training, but that's another thing that we're working on. There's so many different things that we're involved in. And the great thing about a department like Toledo Fire and Rescue is we're so large. We have about 530 members right now. We have 18 stations. We have 33 frontline apparatus. And with that comes all those opportunities that I was talking about, that if you're interested in that sort of thing, you know, we will provide that training. You can get on those teams and 
you can learn that stuff and you can excel at it and go on those incidents and, and really make a difference with that technical training. That sounds really interesting, incredibly exciting for a lot of people. I'm glad that we were able to share that. It was my pleasure having you as a guest today. We're always proud to celebrate um, lots of people in our community who who have lots of accomplishments, but particularly one that we know is an Owens alum. And so we appreciate the time that you were willing to give to us today to share and talk, and we hope that someday in the future you'll be able to come back and share with us more. I would love to do that. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this second episode of the podcast. My interview with Chief Armstrong reminds me of how proud I am of our Owens graduates and everything that they can accomplish in their careers and in their lives. It also demonstrates how important post-secondary education is to support career paths, career pivots, and lifelong learning. Many students come to Owens believing that they're going to pursue one path or one program, and they get here and discover so many different possibilities that they actually decide to go into a different field. Or sometimes people wind up in a field working and they see that it's evolving or changing and in order to advance they may need to upskill or learn new aspects of their job. Owens is here for students at all different life stages whether they're returning to college after being out for a while or if they're coming here straight out of high school. My next guest can speak to that critical transition point between K-12 through and post-secondary education. Please be sure to join us for episode 3 when I sit down with Toledo Public School Superintendent Dr. Romulus Durant. Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss it. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take care.